Father, we thank you this morning for your amazing, amazing love and grace. Lord, we recognize that when we go our own way, not only does it bring self-destruction, but it so negatively impacts the lives of others. And Lord, I pray today as we hear your word, I pray, first of all, that you would encourage us, that you would instruct us, Lord, in your ways. Lord, that you would speak into our innermost being and that we would be deeply reassured But as well, Father, that our understanding would increase and areas in our lives where you are zeroing in on and revealing darkness, that light would shine. That, Lord, rather than feeling condemned, though we may feel convicted, I pray that we will sense that you are right there with us, encouraging us, strengthening us, forgiving us, Lord, transforming us. We thank you for that. I pray today that you'll help me with my voice for all three services. I pray today that miracles will be released in this place. And I pray, Lord, even as we started last week, that those who responded to you and said, Lord, I want to experience you, Lord, that you would hear their cry. That in the days to come, that the experience with you would intensify and increase that it would bring about amazing transformation. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn once again to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Just Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Start at the book. Gregory Elder shares an incident in his youth while growing up on the Atlantic coast. He he spent long hours building these intri- this intricate sandcastles. How many have ever been to uh, Vancouver Island? I, I was there once and they had the Sandcastle Festival. I mean, it's amazing what people do building sandcastles. It's, it's an art. He was into it. But then one year, some bullies came along. How many know bullies like to do nasty things? And so he would spend long hours creating this beautiful city in sand and within a few moments... They'd come through and destroy his city. Well, he decided, I'm not suggesting this is the avenue to go, but he decided he'd had enough of these bullies and their antics. So he decided to reinforce his sandcastles. He placed cinder blocks, rocks, and chunks of concrete in the base of his castles. And so when the local tough guys appeared, he disappeared, and their bare feet met their match. Beneath the sand, there was something of enduring substance. (laughs) You're saying, what a painful thing. I think so often we look at the church, and many times we see the church in its humanity, its frailness and its weakness. Isn't that true? Many times we see a church in a large center, and there's just maybe a handful of people gathered, and sometimes people are struggling with doubt and difficulties in their lives and sins, but I want to let you know that there is a power greater than what we see at work within the human aspect of the church. Yeah, there are great dangers today in, in, that are affecting us as a church community. We think of secularism with all of its uh, false ideas, or even within the church, the heresies that can spring up Or sometimes it's just plain old sin in our lives. 
But I want to declare to you today that Jesus Christ himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So even though we see all of these challenges, we can have this deep assurance that God is building his church. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, I really like this guy. He passed away in the late 1980s. He said this, the Bible is God's book. It's a revelation of God. And our thinking must always start with God. That's the biggest problem we have in our culture today. It doesn't start with God. It starts with ourselves. And he said, that's a problem. He goes on to say, much of the trouble in the church today is due to the fact that we're so subjective. In other words, it's about us. You know, we're so interested in ourselves. We're so egocentric. He said, that's the particular error of this present century. He was writing in the latter part of the 20th century. Having forgotten God, having become so interested in ourselves, we have become miserable and wretched, and we spend our times in shallows and in miseries. In other words, there's a lack of depth to us. Wow, what a profound insight. Do you know what happens when you forget about yourself? You really begin to live. It's really the truth. You know, Jesus said, you really want to find life? You have to deny yourself. That's the secret to beginning to really experience life. And Martin Lloyd-Jones puts his finger on the, 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 the situation. He said, the message of the Bible from the beginning to the end is designated to bring us back to God, to humble us before God. You know, I had a, such an amazing experience this week. I've been really studying, and I was reading a commentary Len, you could appreciate that. He, he likes reading commentaries. Reading a commentary by Dr. Bruce Walke. And I got so convicted, you know, about how, you know, there's things in my own soul that God wants to bring about transformation. How many know it's a good thing when God puts his finger on things in your life that need to change? Even though it makes you, you feel uncomfortable. A lot of people say, well, I feel condemned then. I said, no, condemnation means there's no hope. Conviction means that God is standing beside me saying, listen, even though you have this problem, I have a solution. You can put your hope in me. You can confess your need for me. You can receive forgiveness from me. You can experience transformation from me. Wow, is that ever encouraging? And he goes on to say to humble us before God and to enable us to see our true relationship to him. And that is the great theme of this book that we're looking at, Ephesians. It holds us face to face with God. We're looking at this opening uh, few verses. One of the problems I think many of us experience is the issue of identity. Who am I? You know, we struggle with it. I remember as a teenager struggling with trying to figure out who I was. And I, I grew up in a broken home, so my identity issue was far more intense than maybe another person who grew up in a more stable environment. I had identity issues. I was extremely insecure because of that. Anybody relate to this? Anybody understand what I'm trying to talk about here? And if you don't think identity is a significant issue, let me tell you, that when Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, the confrontation, the temptation was over the issue of identity. The Bible says that Satan came to Jesus and said to him, if you are the son of God, turn these you know, stones into bread. 
if you are the son of God. How many catch the temptation? In other words, it was addressing the very essence of who Jesus is. Now, thankfully, we know from Scripture that Jesus had just been baptized and the Father had spoken from heaven and said, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. It has been settled in the heart of Jesus. He knew who he was. But so often as Christians, we don't know who we are. And because of that, we're beaten by the enemy right from the get-go. We just seem to succumb to things. We need to understand who we are. We need to understand our spiritual DNA. We need to understand what Jesus Christ has secured for us by dying on the cross. We need to understand our position before Almighty God so that we can have confidence in this life. But many of us vacillate and we're overcome by temptation because we don't know who we are. Are we really a child of God? Are we, as the scriptures teach us, are we a saint or are we still a sinner? Because we sometimes struggle with sin, does that mean I'm no longer a saint? And of course, the answer is of course not. Because the moment you and I come into God's family, the moment you and I receive Jesus Christ, we become someone other than what we were before. We're now in God's family. And to be a saint literally means that you and I are now separated for God's use, for God's purpose. You know, when we understand some powerful truths that the book of Ephesians brings out, I love chapter one. It deals with this whole issue of identity. If you struggle with it, focus in on chapter one. Really study that chapter. It will really help you. But today I'm gonna just focus in on two Uh, important truths that we need to understand and it relates to how God has a purpose for our lives. That we're not here by accident. Do you know, one of the problems with the teaching of naturalistic evolution is that you and I were here by an accident and there's really no rhyme, no reason to life. And you can appreciate how much damage that's doing inside of people's minds. But if you and I believe that there's a God in heaven who created this world and created you and I, and he has a divine purpose for us, it changes our understanding of who we are and how we're going to live our lives. It transforms us. And that's what I want to focus our attention on this morning. And the first one is simply God's initiative in calling us to himself. That's an amazing thing that God would reach out to us, you know, when we had no thought of him. Now, I did not grow up in a very, what I call a very devout religious home. We, you know, we went to church, but it was not a very religious home. It wasn't a lot of thought of God. And a lot of times we just missed church completely. And there were long seasons in my life where I had no thought of God whatsoever. It's true. But I'm so thankful God was thinking about me. I'm so thankful that God is thinking about us long before he even creates us. And I'm going to show us that in the scripture. You know, God has a plan for each and every one of our lives. That every life in this room, God knows your appointed days. He knows what every day will hold all the way to the day he takes you. God knows your story. That's an amazing thing to me. God knows all about you. 
that amazing? Seven billion plus people live on the planet and God knows us all by name. You go, I couldn't even relate to that. And that's yeah, because you and I are not God. He's far greater than we understand. Well, right from the start, the Apostle Paul starts out this book, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul, who is this guy? Well, he's a guy that we're gonna find out had, you know, knew about God, was quite zealous, but had a wrong understanding. God had to change it, and we know that. It says here, that word apostle really means to be one who is sent out. He represents someone else. It's very powerful, you know, that we are, you know, I was, I was reading this this week, it really struck me. You know, when, when you were a messenger for the king, that's not just anybody that can do that. God has to, the people involved represent another person. They have to know a lot to represent another person, especially in the ancient world. These people that were representatives that went and spoke on behalf of their, their king to another king, they had to understand the mind of the king. They had to communicate the message perfectly. Not their message, but the king's message. They were an ambassador to the king. They would have to listen very carefully to what the other king said and bring that information back. It took a lot to be able to do that. Paul says, listen, God selected me to be an apostle, a sent out one to bring this message. And he said, I, was, I didn't select myself. The book of Galatians says this, but when God who set me apart from birth, oh, I love that. How many, listen to what he's saying. God who set me apart from birth. What does that tell you? God had a plan for Paul's life from the day he was born. And God has a plan for your life from the day you were born. He said, when God set me apart from birth and called me by his grace. Now that didn't happen at birth. It happened later on in his life. And we find that story in the book of Acts. Paul tells us testimony. How he was actually persecuting Christians. How he was actually opposed to Jesus he was actually opposing God's plan. He was doing what he thought was right in the eyes of God, but he was totally wrong. And isn't it amazing how often in our lives we think we're completely right? And the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And most people are doing what they're doing because they actually think what they're doing is the right thing to do. But God intervened in his life. It says on the road to Damascus, the risen Jesus appeared to Paul. Isn't that amazing? Um, we don't usually have that kind of a dramatic conversion experience. But Paul fell to the ground, it says, and he heard the voice and he said, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Excuse me? He never persecuted Jesus physically, yeah, but he was persecuting the church. And Christ is the head of the church and we're the body. And so Jesus said, you're persecuting me. And Paul repented. And from the day Paul was born, God had it in his mind that Paul would become an ambassador, an apostle, someone to bring this amazing message of God's grace to kings, Gentiles, and to the people of Israel. And we read that in Acts chapter 9. It says here, uh, so that calling was for a purpose. And God has a calling for every one of our lives, and he has a purpose in it. We need to understand. 
Our problem of trying to figure out our lives is we keep looking at ourselves first. Can I just encourage you, look away from yourself. Our biggest problem is ourselves. That's our biggest problem. You know, we think our biggest problem is our spouse, our kids, somebody else. It's really easy to, you know, my parents, they mess me up, you know. My teachers, they follow them in my head. We go on and on. Our biggest problem isn't people. Our biggest problem is ourselves, and we're looking at ourselves. We've got to look above ourselves. We've got to look to God. Say, God, what do you see? And what God sees and what you see are two different things. We have to have a divine perspective. It says here, uh, when we, what we find Paul writing to the saints, he says, to those in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Notice this is in the plural. He's not writing to an individual. He's writing to a body. And one of the deepest problems in our North American culture is how individualistic we are. We don't see ourselves in community. And, you know, in another, next Sunday I'll be preaching in India. The people there do not see themselves only as individuals. They have a deeper sense of community. And I, and I see it expressed in the church. It's so different in our church because they don't think in terms of individuality. They think of themselves in terms of a collective unit. It's a whole different focus. And when they pray, I notice they pray a lot together. They pray a lot, but they pray together. And, you know, if you go visit them in uh, the dormitories, like I'll go to the seminary dormitories or the college dormitories, I see these young people and they have an hour of prayer and they're not praying by themselves. There's two or three sitting beside each other and they're just crying out to God together. It's just beautiful. And some of you have traveled with me and have seen that. It's very, very powerful. Notice what it says here. We're in a relationship with other people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Speaking of Jesus. It says, you also like living stones. Some people say, well, what's where did we get our name from, Pastor? Right here. You know, we're living stones. You know, it says here, we are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. What does it mean to be a priest? It means someone who's in relationship to God, someone who has access to God, someone who you know, speaks to God on behalf of people, that's called prayer, and somebody who hears from God and speaks to men on behalf of God. Wow, what a beautiful calling. It's precious. You are a priest. How many here say, I knew I was a priest, Pastor? Raise your hand. You knew you were a priest. Raise your hand. How many? Some of you didn't know that. I'm telling you, you're a priest. Well, I've never been ordained. You have been. God ordained you when you became a Christian. You're now a priest. You have immediate access into the presence of God. It says, offering spiritual sacrifices as acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know, many feel that this letter was what they call a circular letter. And what that meant was, it wasn't addressed to a particular church, but to the church generally. It was read at Ephesus, but it was also read in many other communities. And so it dealt with the church in a general sense. And I love this letter because it speaks to us in a general way about the nature of the church before God. You know, I say so often, you know, we look at the world and marvel at the spectacle to which the human race has produced. And, and let's, let's face it, we're made in the image of God. God is a creator, so humanity is creative. 
How many think it's pretty amazing some of the technological things we've done as humanity? I think it's, I'm amazed. But you know what? That doesn't mean we're just, you know, as great as human beings are, God is still greater. And we need to understand that. What we're doing is because of who he is. He's given us who he is inside of us. Even if we're not serving him, we still have that wiring inside of us. But, you know, a lot of times we look at the church, and especially in the first century, they just seem to be this little group of people, generally outnumbered, generally persecuted, you know, generally considered in low esteem by the culture per se, and yet it kept growing, which was amazing. And you know, isn't it interesting today, even though the church right now is, you know, the church of Jesus Christ is the largest, what I call, element in the world, it's still being bashed today like never before. How many know that's true? You know, the, the absolute criticism against the church, the vindictiveness, the nasty comments, you know, the, the persecution, the social ostracization, you know, the intellectual put-downs, they just continue. How many know, notice that? hasn't stopped. It's unabated. So how do we see the church? So often we feel embarrassed, you know, or, or, or else we look at each other and we're going, well, we're not really that spectacular. We don't see ourselves as much different than people in society. But let me just say this. You have the wrong perspective. You know, you know it depends where your vantage point is when you're looking at things. It can change everything. I remember a number of years ago, I was in Seattle, and I was ready to you know, leave the city. I was on a flight, and we're going down the runway, and how many know in Seattle it rains a lot? It was one of those gray, rainy, yucky days, and I was coming back home, and we're, I'm flying out, and all of a sudden, you're, you're lifting off, and you come through the clouds. And you're on top of the clouds, and every, the sun is shining. It's absolutely gorgeous, and there's Mount Rainier, you know, because she's peeking up over the clouds. And I'm going, wow, it's pretty majestic. And I'm going, this is how God sees it. He has a whole different perspective on what life is like. So often I feel like when I'm flying, I'm looking down. And remember when you come to land, you, you're getting, you know, everything's getting a little larger. But you can see the little cars driving down. It all looks like a little bunch of ants down there. You know, don't you ever feel like sometimes we're living an ant life? Ever feel that way? And yet God has got a totally different perspective. He does care, but he sees all this movement and action and what's going on below. But God has a different perspective on life. But you know what happens when you and I have the mind of God or the mind of Christ? We have a different perspective. And we need to see the church the way God sees the church. So here he calls us saints. To the saints at Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's painting a picture for what God has done for us. Saints set apart for God's purpose. Those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's talking about our standing before God. You know, when God looks at us, he sees us as he sees Jesus. Isn't it a great thought? You know that word righteousness actually in Chinese is a picture of a lamb over a man. And when God looks at us, he sees Christ in us. He sees the sacrifice of Christ for us. He sees us standing before him in a perfectly right relationship. I love that. You know, because sometimes we look at ourselves and go, I'm a mess. 
I'm a struggler, right? But when God's looking at you, he's looking at you differently. He's seeing Christ in you. He's seeing Christ in you. How many know that looks pretty good? No, thank God he sees Christ in me. I'm glad he doesn't just see me. I'm glad he sees Christ in me. And that's the power of the good news, that God sees Christ in us. In chapter 1, we find two verses that answer the big question regarding the whys and hows of life. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. First of all, the Christian life is a life of blessing. I'm blessed. How are you, Pastor? I'm blessed. How are you, Beryl? I'm blessed. How are you, Sterling? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Hallelujah, I'm blessed. You go, oh, I got all these problems. Hey, if that's where your focus is, you're, you're going to just go right there and you're going to live in misery. But when I think about what Christ has done for me, I'm blessed. I'm forgiven. I have hope. I have eternal life. I have the presence of the Spirit of God. I can access into the presence of God. I can talk to God. I can bring all my fears to God. He delivers us from all of our fears. I'm a blessed person. Do you see yourself as blessed? If you don't, you need to. You need to sit down and count your blessings. Count your blessings. Oh, but I got these problems. Count your blessings. Everybody has problems. But you're blessed. You're blessed. Wow, thank you. I'm blessed. Paul gets so excited when he's writing this. This is a run-on sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. In the Greek, it's all one sentence. He just can't stop. He's, he's on a roll. He just starts extolling. He just gets so excited about all the blessings that you and I have. Notice he calls them spiritual blessings. So you and I may not always have physical blessings, but we always have spiritual blessings. Yeah. We're adopted. We're forgiven. We're redeemed. We're his child. Hey, we belong to his family. Yeah. Look who my daddy is. I got a marvelous father. He's amazing. How many, when you were a little kid growing up, you were really proud of your dad? I mean, when you're a little guy. Didn't you look up to your dad? Come on now. And you're proud of your dad? You can be proud of your heavenly daddy. You can be proud of your heavenly daddy. Yeah. He's amazing. Next, we find the reason why God blesses us or how we should live in light of that blessing. He's called us to live a holy and a blameless life. In other words, our privileges also bring responsibilities. That neat. You know, Patty and I have been watching this series on Netflix called The Crown. How many are watching that or you've seen it? That is an amazing series. I, you know, I don't advocate a lot of it, but, you know, I, I'm a historical person. I love history and I like all that stuff. And... There's a scene, I've seen the 10 episodes already. Woo. Yeah. No, I'm going to give you, if I had the clip, I'd show it to you. But Queen Elizabeth in her younger monarchy, do you realize she's not only the head of government in England, she's the head of the Church of England. That's a, that's a heavy responsibility. And she's got advisors. 
And her private secretary in the story is a guy by the name of Peter Lazo. And he comes up to her and she's conflicted. She's got to make this big decision. And she's conflicted between family loyalties and her responsibility as the queen. It's very intense. I, I have a lot of respect for Queen Elizabeth after watching this. But whoever is writing this series, I think he might be a Christian. He's bringing stuff out that's so beautiful. I love it. And she says to her private secretary, well, at least this is not as bad as what my uncle did. Her uncle abdicated from the throne, okay? And he says, your majesty, I beg to differ with you. That's where you're wrong. And then he begins to proceed to describe the steps that he watched her uncle take to move from here on this level, he compromised here, 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 until he finally got there. And folks, you and I need to know something. That when we are a child of God, we have a responsibility. And sometimes we don't always do what we want to do. We do what God wants us to do. And it's good for us. It is good for us. Though at the time we go, it's not what I really wanted. But you know what we tend to do? We tend to go with our emotions. We tend to go with our feelings. We tend to go with, this is what I really want. And yet at the time, we know it's not right. And when we compromise, it's always done to our detriment and to the detriment of others. We have a responsibility. Paul is writing primarily to Gentiles. We read in chapter two, he's broken down the wall of barrier between Jew and Gentile. Do you know there was no problem convincing the Jews that they were God's chosen people? They got that message. As a matter of fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says the Lord did not choose you because of any other, before any other people. He set his affection on you and you were more, not that you were more numerous for you were the fewest of all people. In other words, God didn't choose you because you were the greatest, best. Rather, you were the least, but I'm gonna choose you. So sometimes we get pretty proud. Well, I'm a, I'm a Christian. <laughs> God chose me. I'm going, good. That's true, but it's not because we're great. It's because of his mercy. It's because of his love. It's because of his grace. So what in the world was God doing choosing Israel? Well, in the book of Isaiah, God was choosing them to make them a witness, okay? And it says here, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. In other words, you are to be my witnesses to everybody of who I am. And the reason God chooses you and me is to make you and I a witness of who he is. So when people say, what makes you tick? You go, this is who's changed me. This is what he's done for me. It's to bring glory to God. You know, it's not so people walk up and say, oh, but you're such a nice person. You're so sweet. You're so kind. You're so understanding. Thank you. That's not what it's about. I know some of you are really nice and sweet. But I'll tell you what. Take Christ out of you and you won't be so nice and sweet. You know? 
put a little pressure on you and we don't, we're not, we, how many here say, I don't, I'm not always sweet, pastor. There's been a few moments in my life I've not always been nice, right? No, it's for us to be a witness of who Christ is. Let me move on to the second truth. Oh, yeah, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Wow. So the church is to be a witness. Amen? To whom? To God. It's for God. Now, let me move on to the second truth. His intention for us. Look at God takes initiative. You didn't choose God. He chose you. He says that in John 15. He says, you've not chosen me. I've chosen you. Right? Did he not say that? Yes, he did. Okay, so he, did Israel pick God or did God pick Israel? God picked Israel. So this is going to blow you away, but God chose you. How many feel pretty privileged right now? God picked you. Remember as you're a kid growing up and they're picking teams? Wasn't that always nasty? Especially for the last kid, nobody wants you. Yeah, you're the deficient, you know, you can have them. I always love it when the last kid that nobody wants does good. I always love that. I cheer them on. That's great. But that's what God does. He goes, okay, I'll take you on my team. And how many know when you're on God's team, that's the winning team. And he even lets sometimes the least and the less shine. He loves to do that. He likes to take the weak things of this world and the, you know, the humble things of this world and... Let them shine. So that the people who are smart and strong, they go, what's going on? Can't figure out, why are you succeeding? You should be failing. My God. Right? Hey, David, King David, his dad did not even have him show up for his coronation. Why? Because his dad did not see what was going on in the heart of David. And so he sent seven other boys to meet the prophet Samuel. And, God, and Samuel goes, I mean, Samuel even thought the first guy was going to be the king. Isn't that true? And God spoke to him. He says, you're looking on the outside. I'm looking on the inside. And at the end of seven, he goes, none of these qualified. He goes, you must have another son here somewhere, right? Oh, yeah. I left him out with the sheep. He's the, he's the runt of the litter. He's not going to amount to a lot. Yeah, we'll just bring him over here. And when David shows up, God says, that's the one. How many here say, thank God, I'm the one? Are you guys getting blessed here? Some of you getting encouraged? He picked you. He picked you. Why did he pick us? Oh, so why does God choose us? Well, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 4, it says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. To be holy means to be set apart. He's picking you for a reason. He's picking you for a job. He's picking you for a purpose. Lord, what is the purpose? Well, he tells us why he picks us. Because of his great love. It's not because I'm so good. I, was, I needed to be picked. I needed help. God said, okay, I'll pick you. Out of his great mercy and love, right? 
God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even as we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved. It's by God's gift you've been given this eternal life. God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? He picked you. But I want to share a story from the Old Testament that's going to help us understand this. Why did he do it? You know, we are described in the Bible as a bride. I know, guys, it's hard for us to relate to this. Girls, you can relate to this far better than we can. We're the bride of Christ. Christ is the groom. Here's the story. Picture this. In the Old Testament, Israel was called the bride. Remember that? And remember the story in Hosea? His wife was unfaithful to him. That just broke his heart. And God goes, now you know how I feel. My people have been unfaithful to me. You know, when we weren't unfaithful to God, it's like committing adultery. It's breaking trust. Very interesting. That's the whole picture in the Old Testament. But the story I really want to get to is found in Genesis 24. It's the story of Abraham, and he has a son named Isaac. And he's going to take a wife for his son Isaac. Remember that? And so he talks to his servant, Eleazar, and says, I want you to go back to my homeland and find a bride for my son. And so Eleazar goes out. Eleazar is a type of the Holy Spirit. Just like Eleazar went out to seek the bride. And remember, he didn't know who he was trying to find. Finally gets, he finally comes into Haran, and he sees this beautiful girl. She's coming, and here's this prayer. He said, Lord, I don't know who this bride's going to be, but I'm going to ask these young women for water. And if this young woman, this one particular, is coming, if she will not only give water to me, but give water to all my camels, I'll know she's the one. Now, how many know watering camels is a pretty arduous task? They do drink a lot, you know? So giving him water would have been easy. But she went out and said, listen, here's some water, sir. Let me water your camels. Now, we could say, oh, that's beautiful. Rebecca did that. But what we need to know is, Eliezer's praying to God to make his trip successful because he's looking for what? He's looking for a bride for his master's son. The Holy Spirit right now is looking for the bride, the bride of Christ. It's a beautiful picture. C.H. McIntosh says it this way. It's beautiful to observe that the call and the exaltation of Rebecca were founded upon the oath between Abraham and his servant Eliezer. Isn't that true? Eliezer made an oath before Abraham. He would not let Isaac go look for the bride. He would go look and bring the bride to the son. Wow. Eliezer, type of the Holy Spirit. Oh, sorry. She knew nothing of this, though she was their purpose. How many see that? Rebecca's not in on it. She doesn't even know she's going to be a part of this glorious plan. She doesn't see it. So what happens? Eliezer is a type of the Holy Spirit in the plan and economy of God before you and I even had any thought toward God. God in eternity had prepared a bride for his son. 
Then the Holy Spirit goes out. The Holy Spirit is going out right now. He's been going out for thousands of years. Remember that Eliezer did not know who the bride was. So he prayed and he asked, who is this bride? And I told you what happened. And the Holy Spirit sends out his message and he invites. How do we know who the bride is? It is the one who responds by faith. It's the one who says yes. We don't know. You and I don't know. See, the church and the bride in Revelation say, come. There's an invitation to people to come. We don't know who the bride is. But when they have their hearts open, they respond by faith. It's the one who hears the message, believes it, receives, receives it, and receives God's spirit comes into their lives. They are the bride. Over and over again, week after week, the message of God is going out all across this globe. And God knows those who are his because When that message goes out, they hear the message and faith wells up within them and they believe it and they receive it and it begins to transform their lives. So what is our responsibility? So many times when we're sharing with someone, we think, oh, I've got to have a good argument. Now, it's it's good to be a little, have a little understanding of the gospel. But listen, you if you can, you know, if you can, argue people into the kingdom of God, they can be argued out. But when the Holy Spirit opens the heart, it's a work of grace. Remember Peter and the disciples are following Jesus. Jesus had never told them he was the Messiah. One day they were at a place called Caesarea Philippi and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up amongst the 12, says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Peter, you're so blessed. He said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. See, Jesus was flesh and blood, so I know Jesus didn't tell him. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. He had a, he had a revelation from the Spirit of God. God revealed to Peter who Jesus is. Isn't that amazing? That's, that's what the church is built on, this revelation of understanding who Jesus Christ is. Wow. The reason why we're blessed is for the son's sake. God the Father is taking a bride for his son. The son is the grand object of all the thoughts and counsels of God. And if any are brought into blessing or glory or dignity, it can only be in connection with the son or with the connection of Christ. It's God's intention that we should live a holy life without blame. Wow. Does that mean we never sin? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it means is the desire and object of our heart is to please the Father. And sometimes we fail, but our desire and longing is to do what's right. That's when I know people are Christians. They want to please God, right? You know, if people don't want to please God, they, you can see it. How many people go, oh, I really want to please God? I go, only the people that have the Spirit of God in them want to please God. It's really the work of the, great, of the Spirit of God. It's God's, as, as, uh, does that mean that, you know, we never make a mistake? Well, no, because Isaiah says we're all like sheep. We all have gone astray. Everyone has gone his own way. There's not one person on this planet who would really seek God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. You and I need to know that. Do you know the desire to please God is not a normal desire. It is a supernatural desire. It's the work of the Spirit inside of you. 
All of us move and gravitate towards sin when we're left to ourselves. The only reason we're here today is because God's spirit has come into our life and we are yielding to him. And he is keeping us by his power. Do we have any responsibility in this? Absolutely. We see it all over the scriptures. We're called to walk worthy of this calling. You know, when you're watching this series, if you watch it, you'll see the queen was trained to walk worthy of her calling. It's beautiful. And, you know, there's moments where she has to choose between doing what the calling calls her to do versus what maybe her human desire wants to do. And you see that tension in the show. It's beautiful. I go, that's describing the tension that we experience as Christians. We need to walk blamelessly that we might manifest the grace and the glory of Almighty God so that the society around us can see that God is real, so that the world can see, you know, the glory of God. That's God's intention for your life and my life, that God could be glorified in us. Let's stand. Wow. I'm going to close with the story. Some of you know maybe of the story. There was an international exposition over a hundred years ago. And the people in the city were so upset by this monstrosity that was created, they wanted it to be torn down immediately after the exposition. Yet from the moment its architecture, the architect first conceived it, he took pride in it. He loyally defended it against all who wished to destroy it. He knew it was destined for greatness one day. And today, one of the architectural wonders of the modern world stands as a primary landmark in Paris, France. Of course, the architect was named was Alexander Gustav Eiffel. His famous tower built in 1889. We look at it today as significant. Isn't it amazing? The church is God's greatest creation on the planet. Do you know that? Look at what it cost him to build it. And you and I are a part of it. And maybe you're here today, you say, I don't even know if I'm a part of it, Pastor, but boy, this is amazing to hear how God sees us. How many here this morning, you can honestly say, I have a different view today than I had before I started the sermon. Something is shifting inside of me. I'm seeing, I'm seeing the church differently. How many are seeing the church differently? Do you see it differently? Do you see it as the glory of God? Amen, isn't that amazing? And how many here, you're encouraged. You're encouraged by that. Isn't that encouraging? I think it's encouraging. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. I'm going to tell you. You know, he's, the Holy Spirit is calling. He's calling out. He's saying, listen, I want you to be a part of my bride. And if you will yield to me, you can be a part of it. And I can do begin that work of grace in your soul that will bring about transformation. Really, he does change your life. I can testify, he changes you. You know, I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I'll tell you, God changes you. 
And he never stops working on you. He just keeps working to make us more like him. Why? So we can bring glory to God. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning. Thank you for this amazing gift, this gift of life. Thank you for loving us so deeply that reaching out to us, for forgiving us, for adopting us, for cleansing us. Lord, for having a purpose in mind with all of our lives. You have intention, Lord. You have appointments for us. You're watching and overshadowing our lives, oh God. Things are not just happening randomly to us, but you are guiding us step by step and making us more and more into your image. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.